<laughs> All right, let's go ahead and get started this evening. Uh, we are at Exodus uh, chapter 26 and verse 7. We're going to look at the second, uh, third, and fourth coverings that are on the outside of the taber- tabernacle uh, this evening. Now, obviously, there's been six verses that have been spent with the uh, information that deals with with the uh, linen curtains, which are the innermost curtains on the tabernacle. They have cherubim embroidered into them. And so we find uh, quite ornate, quite a large gathering. We find five curtains and five curtains, which is grace meeting grace. Then we find the goatskin curtains, and that's where we are right now. And we're going to take a look at those. So before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer. And... uh, Get ourselves ready to look into this uh, very important part of the plan of God. It reveals it, and I believe it reveals it in a lot more detail than a lot of people do. They tend to look at the outside, and I was just thinking a while ago, I thought, what if you just taught this with no symbolism? Wouldn't this be one of the most dry and boring sections that you could ever pass? And this board was five feet, and make, make these two together, and... And you're going, why? I mean, it's a normal question to me. Why do it that way? Well, it fits. And that's a good enough answer for some folks. But I see uh, quite a bit of symbolism in it. And I believe we're invited to look because it's all called a type. It's all called the shadow in Hebrews chapter 10. So if the whole is, then the parts are. And that's pretty easy to reason from one place to another. Being careful to let the typology be uh, taught to us by the scripture itself unless it's one of those types that's just readily obvious and so what we're going to do is proceed on with the goat's hair curtains and before we begin let's just take this time for prayer and get ourselves ready let's pray father again we thank you for your amazing word We thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you for the depth of it. Father, we thank you for the revelation of it that you have revealed to us your son in a lot of different ways, numerous methods as your scripture says, and in different different, um, types and symbols throughout, throughout scripture. So Father, I pray that we'll get just a better picture of your plan of the ages, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we um, again, we've talked about the uh, linen curtains made of the fine Egyptian linen made from the, let's see, where is it, the Nile River and the, uh, what did Mike Lindell say, the Nile River and <laughs> three places it comes together from. And it's actually been that way for 4,000 years that we know of. So it is very good cotton that he's talking about. Now, verse 7, he says, Then you shall make, our word manufacture, once again, I saw, make something out of something, curtains of goat's hair. Now, the goat here is the ez. Simple little word, ez, with a hyphen in front of it. Choose 74 times, and she is primarily a female goat's hair. We're going to see that on the third curtain is going to be a male uh, lamb that's here, but this is the female goat's. It says for a tent. Now the tent is a ohel, which is an interesting way when it comes into English. What can you imagine? Somebody that's going uh, playing games with it. I, I made a comment one time that uh, uh, that here is the Greek conjunction, the strong conjunction Allah. That is used for the strong adversative in the Greek language. And I said it is not the so-called God Allah. And I even made that clarification. Actually, had somebody quit the church because I was talking about Allah in the church service. And I thought, please pay attention. (laughs) Please, please. All right, this is a tent. This is the common word for tent. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) how it came into English this way, but it did. Uh, For Ohel, over the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a mishkan. And it's uh, what the what the white linen curtains were called, the tabernacle. They would go inside of the framework, uh, the the linen curtains themselves, and then the goat's hair would go on the outside of the framework. So we have um, 
for a tabernacle. It says, you shall manufacture 11 curtains in all. Now remember, the linen curtains were 10 curtains. When on the inside, these others are curtains that go on the outside. And then in verse 8, it says, the length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. That's 45 feet. And that will cover C all the way from the front of the tabernacle. I didn't mean to show you that yet. So, anyway. <laughs> Brahms has invaded the, <laughs> has invaded the, uh, the things. Anyway, the, uh, here is the front of the tabernacle. These are actually supposed to reach to within a cubit of the ground. And so these go over the... Um, uh, inside to the innermost part of it and then these goat's hair curtains are uh, actually a cubit two cubits longer so they're a cubit longer on each side and these should go within a cubit of the ground these should go to the ground and we do have in this picture they are not stretched out on tent pegs like these others these outer two uh, coverings show them to be and that's correct because there's nothing that indicates that they're supposed to be Put on tent pegs. So these lay in place. I'm sure they're going to be heavy enough. Once they get them on top of each other, they're going to stay in place and stay in place pretty well. And he says, make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits, that's 6 feet. The 11 curtains shall have the same measurements. Make them all alike. Now, these were longer than the linen curtains. 45 feet versus 42 feet. And the length that we're given here, see, goes over the top of the tabernacle and then down. The curtains were designed to reach the ground. The goat's hair curtains were. And when completed, the covering would be 45 by 66 feet. So you'll ask, where, where does the rest of it go? How does it, how does it fit and all that? And we're going to see that there's an overlap, should be an overlap on the front portion uh, with the goats here over the front portion of the veil. Now, when completed, the covering would be 45 by 66 feet. Now, verse 9 says, and you shall join. Uh, this is a PL, uh, perfect of kabar, C-H-A-B-A-R, and it means to join or unite five curtains by themselves. And you shall double over, this is the word kafal, it's a word that means to divide equally, hence double over exactly, the sixth curtain at the front of the tent. Alright, so if you were to take 60 feet of curtains and you started right here at the very front at the top, 45 feet to get to the back and 15 feet down the back. So that is the linen curtains 45 this way, 60 this way. And then the goat's hair curtains, you start here at the front and there's supposed to be a doubling. You take that six foot wide piece of cloth and double it over so you have a flap that is uh, uh, three feet that will be showing. Now it says double that over exactly. Uh, the sixth curtain at the front of the tent now, it's kind of interesting this, what this word that is translated uh, doubled over means and what the word at the front of the tent means. It is the, it's a noun, mul, M-U-L, is the noun that is used here. But the verb form of this word means circumcision. And when I was studying this, I went, What? This is kind of an interesting word that's used here. The, the noun means that which has been circumcised, hence exposed. So it's exposed at the faces of the tent, literally at the faces of the tent. It's got a three-foot flap. It is a picture with a goat of, of personal sins and the sin nature. It shows the two problems that we have. One is personal sin, the other is the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. And so it's the exposure that is the main point of this. Now, the five curtains demonstrate God's grace in providing a sin bearer. We find the number five, 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
For by his wounds you were healed. So that's the number five. He, he was the sin bearer, and he bore our sins in his body on the cross so we could die to sin. Now the six curtains denotes man's lack of perfection because of sin. From Romans 3.23, uh, to all have sinned and fallen short of the, the grace of God. So here is five, grace, matching six and being connected, which is man. So God's grace meets man in the goat's hair curtains. And we know that the goat is often a sacrifice for sin, part of the sin offering. The doubling over denotes man's twofold problem of personal sins and the sin nature. Uh, some people don't realize that. I've talked to people uh, throughout the, the course of my life that didn't believe anybody sinned until they actually committed the sin, that they didn't have any problem pri- that they didn't have any problems prior to their first sin. And so basically what they're looking at is their first conscious sin, not the unconscious sins that go on with an infant. See, because an infant, you don't have to teach an infant to sin. You don't have to teach an infant to be angry. You don't have to teach an infant to be uh, that be hateful. There, there's some things that just come with the sin nature. Because what we give birth to, that little beautiful bundle of joy, is a sin nature. And that sin nature needs corralling. So, the, the and this leads in, they're trying to answer other theological questions, and I believe it's the wrong way to go about answering it. Here is the issue of the sin nature. Adam committed sin by one man's sin, entered into the world in death through sin, and so death spread to all men who have not even sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. So that's Romans 5 that we find that explanation, and it's telling us that this sin nature has spread to all men. Why did Jesus need to be born of a virgin? He didn't have a sin nature. Otherwise, he'd have been just like us because the sin nature is passed down through the man, the seed of the man is where it comes from. So that's the way God set the plan up, and set any, and uh, that's the way He did it. So this is a twofold problem because we basically uh, are born with a sin nature, and then we beat a dead horse with it, and we start adding personal sins to it: sins of the mind, of the tongue, and the overt sins. That's a, those are the personal sins. So this doubling over indicates that there's a twofold problem. Now, the requirements for entry into the holy place. Entry into the holy place, right here in the front, which portrays life as a believer, involves circumcision of the human viewpoint concerning sin. Now, when we hear the word circumcision, we think of the physical act that takes place on a man's body. It's supposed to be on the eighth day after birth. That's when it's prescribed by uh, the Mosaic law. That's when it is supposed to happen. But there's also another circumcision that is very clearly taught in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned as many times, but it's every bit as valid. Deuteronomy 10:16, which says, Circumcise then your heart. So it's a picture of uselessness. It's a picture of human viewpoint is what he's talking about. We don't need to think like the common worldly people. We need to think like God thinks. Circumcise your heart. Get all the junk out of your life. And it says, and stiffen your neck no more. You know he's talking to, and he talked about stiff-necked, hard-headed people. That was the Jews. So he says, hey guys, loosen up here. Get all this leaven out of your souls, if you will, and start trying to walk a righteous life. Deuteronomy 30, verse 5 and 6 says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul in order that you may live. So you can truly live. So he says when you go into the promised land there, he has circumcised their heart. He's taught them what's real. He has shown them what's real. He's shown them uh, the judgment on Egypt. He's shown them the the uh, veracity of his promises. Every time he says something, he does it. He, he prophesied that to Abraham 400 years before they walked out of there. So it, it was it was very, uh, very highly, um, uh, we can be confident in it. Now, 
But he says, and the heart of your descendants. So he's saying that the potential is there to do that. But then see this, this 10.16? Circumcise your heart. So God provides the means, but man's got to act on it. We find that over and over again. We find it where it says that God will circumcise your heart. It'll really be done in the millennial kingdom. But these people are not walking into the millennial kingdom. They'll figure that out in the first few days, I imagine. It won't take them long to, to figure that out at all. But <clears throat> we're called to do our part as well. Now to the Jews at that time, it also meant they were partaker of the Abrahamic covenant via faith. See, Abraham believed God has imputed to him righteousness. And then, that's chapter 15, where it's recorded. I believe it happened before he left Ur of the Chaldees. He was already a believer. God's not in the habit of making promises to unbelievers. It just doesn't happen, especially about being uh, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's what, that's, those are the kind that he makes for believers. So Abraham is already a believer. But that's chapter 15, where it's recorded chapter 17, was the command to circumcise yourself. Now notice God told him what to do, but Abraham had to do it. And uh, I, you know, I, I want a replay of that when we get there, God telling Abraham what he needed to do, because I can see Abraham going, huh? <laughs> can you say that again? Okay, anyway, the Jews, a word that means, this is the flap on the front of the tabernacle, mul, and every one of them knew what it was. It was the word for circumcision. Now, did they get circumcised your heart? Probably not. They, a lot of them never did. But at least it was there and presented. This is why it's in front of the furniture. Before bonafide service, one was to be a believer. Now this doesn't show, but right out in here, here is your bronze laver right in front of this, this curtain. And then on back farther is the bronze altar. That is the picture of salvation. Because that's where the salvation offerings were brought that taught, the burnt offering taught propitiation that satisfied the righteousness of, and justice of the Father. The burnt offering, the, the gift offering was a non-blood offering. But the perfect gift is what was required in order to satisfy God. It also was an offering of reconciliation, the peace offering as it was called. Because the propitiation is the vertical side of salvation. Reconciliation is the horizontal side. It's the one that it lets us establish relationship with one another. Those three offerings were all optional to a believer to bring them. It didn't save them to bring one of those offerings, but what it did was recognize the, the innocent substitute that had to take their place. There's all kinds of pictures in the offering system. We may go through that because when the offerer got ready to do some of them, the offerer laid the hand, his hand, on top of the sacrifice and cut the throat. In other offerings, the priest put his hand on the sacrifice and cut the throat of the animal. So they're done different ways. They have different symbolisms for, for what is done. But it shows that that's a picture of imputing my sins to that innocent victim. That's what it is. Now that, that's got all kinds of spiritual significance to it. So before they were able, before a priest was able to walk in here, they had to be a believer already. If they weren't, they were on dangerous ground. When they walked inside of that and they really, all they would do, if they weren't a believer, it was only ritual. All ritual. Because they'd never get, a, never get it. Now in verse 10 it says, And you shall manufacture 50 loops. This uh, word is better translated as eyelets. Okay. On the edge of the curtain. That is outermost in the first set, i.e. the first uh, joining. And 50 eyelets on the edge of the curtain in the second joining. So what they're going to do is put loops on these, uh, on this, uh, let's see, it looks like this is probably where they've got them, six feet across here. Here are the loops. So they're going to put these together, eyelets, and then they're going to put them together. They've got to have something to hold these curtains together, and that's what the eyelets are for. 
And it says, <coughs> and you shall manufacture 50 uh, clasps or eyelets. That should have been eyelets of bronze. Now, some um, translate this word copper. King James Version, I, I give them credit. They did the best they could with what they had at the time. Because the, the translators of the King James Version, that is not an inspired translation, as some people believe. King KJV is not the inspired version of God. The original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic is the inspired version. Uh, version that comes from God. The King James Version was a good translation for its time. But when you start thinking back, a lot of, a lot of people actually thought that the uh, Greek that was found in the New Testament was a special Holy Spirit Greek. Because it didn't match classical, didn't match Doric, didn't match Alexandrian Greek. It didn't, it didn't match those things. So they, they're going, what kind of Greek is this? And then they found manuscripts later on, and it, taught, it was the Koine Greek. It was the common Greek of the people. But they didn't know what it was. There were five different kinds of Greek that was uh, available at the time of Alexander the Great. That's in the 300s B.C. And whenever he gathered together the Macedonians and all them, and he gathered together, it said the first time he basically said, charge, only the Macedonians move forward. Because it was different words than those other five dialects of the Greek language. So he commissioned Aristotle to put together and design the Koine Greek language that would meld those five languages together. And it became the lingua franca of the people. And when they moved into an area, they taught them. That's what they did. They taught them that Koine Greek language. And it became probably one of the clearest languages that's ever been, ever been designed and put together. But here is bronze, and bronze is a picture of judgment. It's not copper. Um, New American Standard puts copper in the margin, uh, but it's the same word as 25.3, and it's a word translated, should be bronze. It's an alloy of copper. It's not copper itself. And it says, And you shall put the clasp into the loops, or the eyelets, and join the tent together, that it may be a unit and it shall be one and then in verse 12 an overlapping part literally the excess overhanging part that is left over in the curtains of the tent the half curtain that is left over shall lap over the back of the tabernacle so there was a way to do this where this goat's hair covered up all of the linen the linen curtains and it says, and the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other of what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent. Okay, see, so it recognizes that the white linen curtains are 42 feet long that go from uh, but roughly here. Oh, don't do that, Drew. <laughs> I already gave that away. That was so, I was so looking forward to that, but... <laughs> can't unsee it can you anyway <laughs> you probably wish you could but the uh, <laughs> anyway it recognizes that it's a cubit longer on each each side cubits 18 inches 45 feet this one 42 feet this one so there is a differential on those on those two curtains now <clears throat> The cubit on the one side, cubit on the other, what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent shall lap over the sides of the tabernacle to one side and on the other in order to cover it. Now, this goatskin curtain, the word cover is kasah. It's an interesting word. I'd like to write it out for you in the Hebrew because it uses a psalmic instead of a sheen and all that. But it's a word used 152 times. It is used to cover as referring to the judgment of the flood. So when you think about that, you think, judgment? This is the covering that has to do with judgment because in, in uh, Genesis 8, 6, 14, 28, 15, 5, you find it there used in reference to the flood. You also find the word covering here used for simply clothing. So here's a picture 
that includes a covering that has an idea of clothing to it. The Lord is going to have an outer clothing. He's got on the inside, but he don't look like it on the outside. Okay? And that's what we're that's what we're going to see. But it has inference and references to those things. Now the 50 eyelets would be basically on 10.8 inch centers. Because they're spread out. They'd be a little bit farther. They're spread out over 45 feet instead of 42 feet. Portraying righteousness and justice is stronger than man's sin. They are put together on, on um, the centers, the eyelets. We have the... Uh, Judgment, bronze clasp that put these things together. We have the uh, goat's hair, the, the scapegoat. And it's stronger than man's sin because his judgment took care of all of it. It's what it's saying. It's saying judgment that uh, sin didn't prevail. That whenever the judgment was poured out, it was covered. It was totally covered. It was completely covered. Now, <clears throat> God's grace and man are joined together because of the judgment on the sin bearer. Portrayed by the bronze clasp. We just saw 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. In order that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit. Now we also find 50 of, 50 of these clasps. And when we find this 50 again. It takes us away, takes us to the, the year of Jubilee, because that's where it is about as clear as it gets. And it looks at a total release of slavery. So what happens when those bronze clasps join together the issue of sin? They have, they have uh, taught that they've been taken away. They taught that they have been paid for. And we're released from slavery to our sin nature. Now see, prior to salvation, we're all slaves to the sin nature. We're all enemies of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for, for us, died for the unrighteous. And so he is, he is taken, taken care of all that, but the, the total release from slavery on the 50th year, what happened? Anybody that sold themselves to somebody else to pay a debt? You find that interesting? Mosaic law is very practical. The way that uh, a lot of the liberal uh, group today would say well any kind of slavery is is bad anywhere anytime it it, it kills our freedom and all that and yeah, what you find in the old testament under the law if you if you made a contractual arrangement with somebody and could not pay it then you became that person's servant until the debt was paid that's the way it, that's the way it was that came from god's righteousness and justice so maybe there was something good about that. But what if you're in the 48th year and somebody want, came to you wanting to make a big loan? You want you to loan them a whole lot of money. You might think about it because on the 50th year, they're set free from all of that. <laughs> they are. It's, you're just wiped out. If you took somebody else's land, guess what happened on the 50th year? It went back to them. That's what happens under the Mosaic Law in the year of Jubilee. So it has to do with the fact that it's a release from slavery. The sin nature has been paid for. It is, and the sin nature's power is, is broken. It doesn't mean it's totally defeated. Because we're still doing battle with it. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit is desire against the flesh. But what it does mean is we no longer have to pay attention to our sin nature. We can have victory in this life over the sin nature. And how about personal sins? Now we're, we're, we're real big about realizing once you put your faith in Christ, the penalty for sins, it's already been paid for and you've accepted that as your ticket into eternity. But the power of sin is very real. And sometimes people just take the power of sin for granted and they say, well, that's just the way I am. You, if... <laughs> If the Lord paid for your sins and can deliver you from the biggest problem you could ever have in this life, which was eternity, uh, do you think he can handle all these little squirrely things that we run into on a daily basis and say, that's just me. That's just an excuse. <laughs> we can go in front of him and, and, 
He, he will provide the power. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we a lot of times forget that. And uh, some churches right now are not even worried about the power of sin. They just want you to be you. Let you be you. Okay. That's modern psychology too if you think about it. Embrace who you are. Okay. No need to feel any shame. Any guilt, anything else. Oh, if you feel shame, it comes from a, a God who is silent and probably not there. That's the way they're handling a lot of this stuff. Now, the sixth curtain at the front of the tent would be turned back by three feet and only the fold would show. So that would leave us 63 feet to look at. This would place the eyelets, when you work this all out, and the clasp three feet into the most holy place. So it takes those those judgment clasp out of bronze, takes them into the Holy of Holies as well. Now, that portrays that the actual uniting, five and six curtains of God's grace and man can only be literally observed in the eternal state. You, you got to think about it a second, but it's not it's not that profound or that hard, really. This this thing goes back from the front of this goes back 30 feet to the veil that separates the holy place with the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense from the holy of holies, which is the place that houses the ark of the covenant. Now, as you take these back, you end up with this. This clasp that joins the five and the six together, you end up with it into the Holy of Holies. And it's saying that we're not really going to be able to see what it's really like to be saved till we stand there in eternity. Till we stand there in eternity. Grace has met man. Now the excess curtain at the, the back of the tabernacle speaks of the unpardonable sin that was not paid for. From Mark chapter 3. One that laps over the back, folded up, it is the excess that is not paid for. The purpose of the goat's hair curtains, which is the tent, was to cover the linen curtains, which is called the tabernacle, indicating that Christ was totally judged for our sins. It totally covers the issue of sin. And that's what it's trying to get across. Now, <clears throat> the outer coverings are Exodus 26:14. So see a lot of attention paid to the to the linen curtains on the inside and then the goat's hair curtains that cover that up. One of them was called the tent, the other one was called the tabernacle, the place of dwelling. And now we have a third and a fourth. We have a third and a fourth covering that goes over the um, tabernacle proper. And it says, and you shall manufacturing a covering. Now, this is a mikashah. It's only used 16 times. It does come from the verb kasah that was, we just saw in verse 13. That means to cover for judgment or to cover in a sense of putting clothing on. In Genesis 8:13, it says that Noah took the covering off of the ark. So there was a covering placed on the ark before it went through the flood itself. And it says that Noah removed that covering. There was another sign of protection. The Holy Spirit had covered them, had he not, during this time of the flood. There's, there's a lot of... Sim the, the flood was literal, global, universal. That's what it was. But there was a lot of symbolism in what was portrayed by the ark and by the uh, things that went into the ark. It says, make a covering for the tent of ram skins. Now, the word ram is the ayil, which is used 184 times. It's interesting because when Abraham was being confirmed uh, in Genesis 15, because there were three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. When you study through Abraham carefully, you find out that the, the first part was sexual prosperity. There's going to be a lot of Jews. That's what, that's what he was saying. Then there was land also that was promised to Abraham. And the third was the line of the Messiah. Three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. And you'll see God testing Abraham three different times. And whenever he passes those tests, that part of the covenant is confirmed. 
and it becomes unconditional at that point in time for Abraham and his descendants. Now in chapter 15, that's the second part. That's the real estate uh, offering that he has given to him and to his descendants forever. And so that's, keep in mind, chapter 15, and still Sarah is barren. Okay, Sarah is barren at this point in time, and, and he is being promised right here this, this amazing chunk of land. It's a massive piece of land that, that he is uh, promised. And it is the, the Aiel is one of the offerings that the Lord told him to bring, to bring him a ram. So it is a picture of making a covenant. It's a picture of the fact of keeping the covenant. That's, that's what this ram is about. Plus, we know that it's a sacrifice. Now, in chapter 22 and verse 13, we know that chapter. That's the sacrifice of Isaac. And that the Lord told Abraham to take his son, his only son, and sacrifice him to the Lord. And so... He took two, two guys with him. And look at the symbolism in this story. It's all literal. Totally literal. But look at the symbolism. Two guys went with him. They went a three days journey. Out into the, into the wilderness. And then. Here is the sacrifice getting ready to happen. And Abraham has the knife raised. Now this is, this is quite a picture. Because. How long did the Lord lay in the tomb? Three days. Okay, They walked three days. And when you read Hebrews 11, you find out that the moment God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac was dead in Abraham's mind. Now that, that's hard for any of us to believe. To, to sacrifice your son, your only son, after you'd waited so long, you waited a hundred years, and he is the child of promise. She'd been told he's the child of promise. And then he said, now sacrifice him to me. And then Hebrews 11 tells us, because God knew, Abraham knew God was able to raise him up if he did. Now that's faith. Tremendous amount of faith. Because he knew the promise would be kept. He knew God would keep the promise. That, that to me, that's one of the most amazing passages that we find in Scripture anywhere of faith. The faith of Abraham. And so, this, and what happened whenever God stopped him? There was a Aiel, a ram, caught in a thicket. What is that? Substitution. How could there be a better picture of substitution found anywhere in the Scripture? other than Christ himself, and it was a picture of Christ, the innocent substitute. Only the father didn't stop the knife on, on that day, on Golgotha. He went through with it. It says, of ram skins dyed red. This is a puel participle of Adam. Yeah, it's the same word used for Adam, but it also has a cognate, cognate that goes with it that means primarily red. And um, in the Puel, it's an intensive passive, having been totally dyed red. It said, you know, I don't want any, <laughs> any parts of any other color showing through. I want it totally dyed red. And a covering... Same word that we found earlier in the verse, the uh, Mikasha word. Uh, porpoise skins. Now this is where we have all the fun. This is the word takash. Hebrew word takash used 14 times. This is the first use of it. And uh, I'm going to translate it sea cow skins. It's an interesting word because the King James translated it uh, badgers, I believe. Uh, yeah, it says badger skins. Uh, the New American Standard says porpoise skins. The Holman Bible translates it to manatee. American Standard translates it seal skins. The NIV says it's sea cows. And it says from the top, really. Uh, the outer curtain is what it is saying there. Now, <clears throat> it really looks like a sea cow. <laughs> and that's why what I was saving this for all along. <laughs> and so talk about a 
letting the cow out of the bag <laughs> a little too early. But anyway, that's not that's a that's a Brahms commercial. Okay, and uh, that's basically what they look like. Now. The problem with badgers, there weren't any badgers in that part of the world. <laughs> so that's why that's why people are, they point to that and they point to the King James and the people that think there are no mistakes in the translation of the King James and they look at that and they go, see, the Bible's wrong. The Bible's in error. There's no badgers in that part of the world. Never has been, never will be. There's just not any there. And so they've done more research they have a lot more to work with. They have a lot more information now, a lot more manuscripts than they had in 1611 and before when they were translating the King James to begin with. They have a lot more manuscript evidence. They have a lot more ability to compare languages. They can do it faster. That's just what they do. And so the uh, anyway, they've realized that it is some type of uh, sea creature, which they that was available through the Red Sea, the manatee is a, or sea cow is a very uh, common creature there. They'll get to about a uh, thousand pounds, so you've got a pretty good sized animal there that can be um, cut up and used for outer skins, and it, it would be waterproof. Would it not? You're not going to have to worry about the tent leaking if you cover it up with, with this. So anyway, that's why I translated it sea cow skins uh, from the top. So the ram skins dyed red speak of his substitutionary work on the cross. This is a real clear identity here. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Other powerful passages there. Iniquity is when we take the truth and twist it for the wrong reasons. No right reasons. We take the truth and twist it. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. There wasn't any complaints. There wasn't any arguments. This is the way it is going to be. One of the things we're going to look at Sunday is the eight sayings of, or statements of Christ on the cross. And they're, they're, they're beautiful. You, can, you take the eight statements out and what you see are principles of relationship. Every single one of them is about relationships. And we'll, we'll look at those as we this, this coming Sunday. They also speak of the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us. The ram didn't know any sin. It's a ram skin. And it was dyed red. And so here is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sea cow refers to Christ's appearance to the average man. What did he look like? Because, you know, that's not really a beautiful suit on the outside of this creature, is it? It's kind of blah. It's kind of drab. And some people would say, well, how could you say he was not an exciting man? It's not me that said it. It's Isaiah that said it. It says, for he grew up, he, capital H, grew up before him, the sun grew up before the father like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look on him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. See, I find, I find this fascinating. Look at the outer part of this, this holy of holies of the Jews and then compare it to some of the temples of their day. Some of the temples of Sumer, some of the temples of Babylon, some of the temples that were, they were very ornate. Worshipping other gods, very ornate. Look at what the Jews got. A real plain looking thing on the outside. And that's what Christ is. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. These are what are called prophetic perfects. 
In the Hebrew, they are perfect tenses, which normally looks at a completed action in past time, much like the Greek does. It's a perfect tense. It's looking at something that is done. But this is prophecy. It is future. And it's called a prophetic perfect. And it looks at prophecy with the same certainty as if it was history. Now this is a beautiful way the Old Testament's put together. Because when you find these passages like that, and you're looking at it and saying, this all should be history, this all should be history. And that's what some people do when they attack the Bible. Well, it's all history, there's no prophecy in it. These are prophetic perfects. This is the chapter, Isaiah 53, the Jews don't even read in their synagogues anymore. They don't want to read it because they can't deal with it. They can't figure it out. The three inside coverings portray Christ's qualifications to be the sin-bearer as a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, it tells us who, the inside coverings, what he's going to do, tells us how he's going to do it. He's going to bear the sins of the world. Who is it? The white linen. Okay, Perfect righteousness comes in contact with what sin in the goats how's he going to do it the red covering by becoming the perfect sacrifice himself that's how he's going to do it and what about this outer covering you're not really going to be able to see everything that is going on you're not those people looking at Christ on the cross the vast majority of them I'm sure had no idea what was going on in the spiritual realm while he was there. None whatsoever. I don't think his mom knew. I don't think she was had a real clue. What about John that was standing there? He might have gotten a little more of it than some of them did. Um, look at the soldiers that were there, clueless. Look at the crowds that were there, clueless. They didn't have a clue. He looked like another guy on a cross. This is what he looked like. And an outer covering is waterproof. And that portrays the durability of God's plan. The durability of God's plan. And I, I love that because it's not going to change. It's not going to change. Sometimes we wish it would be over faster. We're ready to go to our, to our eternal home. But in a sense, the four coverings portray the clothing of the Lord from the inside out. In a sense, because they're called the covering. The word covering is used for clothing. On the inside, absolute and total righteousness. What happened to him, born without a sin nature? Sin was imputed to him, the goat skins. What did he do with it? He paid a price for it. So, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. But on the outside, what did it look like? Another Jew walking around on, on this planet Earth. Now, there's no dimensions given for these coverings. See how much uh, time was spent on how big the white curtains are going to be and how big the goat skin coverings are going to be and what you're going to do with them and how you're going to hook them together and all that. That tells us their symbolism to those two. These two are not, not to be broken apart into little bitty things. These things are to be looked at in the sense of the, the ram skins dyed red the fact that he paid for sins for the whole world. The, the uh, skins on the outside, the sea cow skin, he was like anybody else. He was, uh, been, uh, I think there's a passage that says, some, I know there's a song that says, uh, he, looked like any other, he looked like us, but yet was so different. Something on the inside, he was, that's what counted, and that's who he was. But on the outside... You wouldn't have known a difference from him and another Jew walking around on the planet. That's who he was. That we should be attracted to him. What attracted the multitudes? What he did. He did the things only God could do. That's what drew the multitudes to him. What, what, what about what he taught? Now that would have drawn them, right? Yeah. How'd, they, how'd the crowds go to John the Baptist? A crazy man out there in the middle of nowhere eating locust. 
Now it's nice to know that locust had become a delicacy on some menus now, and that you can you can go get a locust dinner. Um, Crawdans is as close as I'm gonna get to that. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna do the locust, but if I'm caught out in the middle of nowhere, I'll try them <laughs> for sure. I'll know. I go, okay, John. Now we're gonna identify with one another and tranche, and we'll see what it see what it's like. All right. Next time we're gonna take a look at the vertical frame, the framework, how it's put together, how the boards are put together. We're gonna find that the boards are gonna go into uh, pedestals that are made for them and uh, all of this is supposed to be precise if it's not cut precisely done it's not going to fit together and yet the thing's designed to fit together perfectly just like the plan of God you notice one thing that just popped in my head here is that what about the what about these these boards that fit together perfectly what happens when you first see the board did they go out and harvest these boards already cut? No, they didn't. They cut them down. I watched this happen in the Philippines one time, and they were building a house for the pastor. And they have these massive trees there in the Philippines that are 30, 40, 50 feet high. And they're, um, I guess, kind of a pine, a pencil pine or something. They're about yay big around. They run up in the sky and uh, these guys uh, they didn't have a lumber truck deliver the lumber pre-cut for them they went out to the property and they cut down a tree and then they started working on the tree and inside of about 45 minutes they had the nicest looking two before you've ever seen cut with a chainsaw took all the, the outside off of it, started cutting it, cut it all down, kept the chips all ready because they can use them for firewood and everything else. Don't waste anything when they're over there. And they built a house out of, out of literally built a house from scratch. And it was something to behold. But think about all that went in to getting these, these pieces of wood that they, they needed cut perfectly, getting the pedestals poured properly so that they would fit together. Now this thing was truly a work of art. Truly a work of art. Work of a master craftsman. Let's pray. We do thank you, Father, for your, your amazing word. We thank you for this day. Just all your grace. We thank you that your grace met man and that we got joined together with our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't thank you enough for that. We thank you for this amazing visual aid that you left to the Jews out in the desert. And Father, I pray that a lot of them would start looking at it now through a different lens and say that you laid this plan out a long time ago. And it included them. They were right in the middle of it. And they need to join up by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the salvation of Israel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.